If you'd like to follow along with the sermon this morning, there's an outline provided in the bulletin for you. And though I'm sure many of you smelled the spaghetti sauce and everything cooking downstairs this morning, perhaps some of you smelled something else. Perhaps some of you smelled brimstone when you came in this morning, since today's sermon passage deals with sin and the devil. And it makes me really feel like I need to turn on like the angry preacher voice to talk about sin and the devil. But I'm going to try and just keep it normal for you guys out of respect. But sin and the devil are some scary topics that we don't necessarily like to hear about, especially from up in this section of the world. Sin and the devil are frightening things to us. And yet we find in chapter 3 of Genesis, at the very beginning of the Bible, we hear about sin. We hear about the serpent, the devil. And so there's something very foundational we need to understand about sin and the devil as it concerns the Christian life. We need to learn about them. They need to shape our thinking. That is why they are here in Genesis 3. So today we're going to look at the first half of Genesis 3. It deals with our experience of sin. Next week we'll take the second half of Genesis 3 that deals with the consequences of sin. But today we're looking at verses 1 through 13. If you'd like to open up your Bibles, Genesis is the very first book of the Bible. And we'll be at the beginning of chapter 3 of Genesis, verses 1 through 13. Hearing why the world is so broken and why we are so broken. Here's the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your word. 
even when it is a story that we know well, a story that speaks of the sinfulness inside all of us. It speaks of humanity's fall. And Father, we pray that today, many thousand years in the future, we hear this story. We hear it in its truthfulness. We hear it as it is your very word coming to us. That we learn from Adam and Eve, our first parents. And that it points us to Christ, your son. In whom we have a hope. In whom we have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Lord, bless us by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we are looking at the fall. The sin, the original sin, the very first sin in the garden. And we're trying to see what we can learn from this first sin and what it teaches us about ourselves, what it teaches us about the tempter, and what it teaches us about how things have gone so wrong. So first, we're going to look at the tempter's strategy. What does he do to tempt us? And then we're going to look at our pattern of sin. How do we fall into sin? And finally, what that does for our relationship to God. So first, the tempter's strategy. Who is this devil, this Satan, and how does he work? Many times we get our understanding of the devil from pop culture rather than scripture. We think of horror movies where people are possessed or their family members are possessed. Something like the little girl in The Exorcist. That's what we expect when we think of Satan. Or we think of Halloween costumes with pointy red horns and a pointed tail and a pitchfork. Or maybe with Genesis 3 in mind and a snake, we think of the Jungle Book and Ka and the way in which he tries to trap Mowgli. We often think of the devil in those kinds of terms, but is that how Satan works? Is he a jump-scare, horror-movie type of enemy, or does he do something different? Well, Revelation 12, verse 9, calls Satan the deceiver of the whole world. And so that is how Satan works. The devil is the great deceiver. In other words, he lies. He tries to get us to believe lies rather than truth. And so there are a few kind of lies we see in this passage that he tries to feed to Eve. First, Satan lies about God's word. The very first words out of the serpent's mouth are, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Satan twists the original command and makes it sound worse. He is framing God in a way that makes God sound restrictive, less kind than he actually is. He changes God's word, and that's one of Satan's tools. He twists God's word. Now, that's one of the reasons why the New Testament talks so much about false teaching. See, when we think of false teaching, we can often think of false teaching in terms of some crazy preacher on TV saying things we should never believe and send him money. Or we think of somebody who talks about God as a purple unicorn who fills heaven with cotton candy. Like, that is our idea of false teaching. And yet here, Satan seems really believable. False teaching is far more subtle and believable than the extreme examples we might imagine. Satan uses these twistings of God's truth to deceive us into believing a lie. He twists God's word. It's one thing he does. Second, Satan lies about the consequences of disobedience. 
He says, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God told Adam and Eve that if they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die. And Satan says, you will not surely die. He directly contradicts the consequences that God has explained. He tells them those are not true. Satan is in the business of denying God's power to judge. He tries to tell us that the judgment, the consequence for sin is not that serious. It's minor, if anything. How true is that today? How many people today deny that God will judge? How many people today deny that there are consequences to sin, that hell is just something we made up, that there is no punishment? Right and wrong are left for us to decide. Satan lies about the consequences of disobeying God. Third, Satan lies about God's character. Everything in this passage is designed to create distrust in God. He's a God who gives restrictive commands to keep you down. He's keeping things from you. He doesn't want you to be happy. He's not telling you the truth. And guess what? You can be like him. In fact, I'm sure you'll do a much better job being like God than he is doing. All of Satan's words slander God's character. They're attributing negative motives to him. He's saying, forget that God gave you life, a beautiful garden, and a spouse that has never done anything wrong to you ever. God's keeping a lot from you. You deserve way more than he's given you. He's deceiving them about God's character, that God is not with you. See, those are lies that Satan uses against Eve in the garden. It's how he works. He tries to deceive people by leading them away from God, away from his word, and not thinking about the consequences of disobedience. And so if that's the kind of enemy attack we're up against, we need a defense. We need something to combat Satan's activity. We need a shield, better than Captain America's shield, a much better shield, a shield that's spoken of in Scripture, the shield of faith. In Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul writes, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So flaming darts, it is not some crazy barroom game where you light darts on fire. Flaming darts gives the impression of bows and arrows in warfare where you would light the arrow and shoot a flaming arrow at your opponent. But we're not much for bows and arrows these days. We like guns. So really, Satan's attacks are lies. And so lies are the bullets of the devil's gun, and he's firing them at us. And we need a shield to stop those lies that are coming at us. We need a shield of faith, Scripture says. Now, faith is another word for trust. And so in order to fight against the devil's lies, we need to trust something that is strong enough to combat the lies that are coming against us. We need to trust God's word. Trust that the consequences for disobedience are real. And ultimately trust that God is a good God who loves us. 
We hold fast to that truth, resisting the lies of the devil. Because we will be tempted. Satan will send lies our way, subtle lies our way, to get us to believe things that are not true. And so we must know the truth, to hold fast to the truth and use it as a shield against his lies that lead us to disobey God. And so that's his strategy. He deceives us with lies. But then what's our experience of sin? If that's what he normally does, what can we learn about how we end up sinning? It's believing lies, but then what? Well, really, all of his lies boil down to one big lie. Timothy Keller puts it this way. He says, the big lie is that we don't believe God is for us. The Jesus Storybook Bible, which is a, a kid's Bible that's out today, is, uh, puts it another way. It asks the question, does God really love me? The fundamental lie that Satan feeds us is a distrust of God, that God is not our friend, he is our enemy. And when we believe that lie, we start to look after ourselves. We don't think God wants to look after us. We live less and less under God's fatherly authority, and more and more we decide right and wrong for ourselves, not trusting that God can decide those things for us. And we find ourselves in the idolatry of human autonomy. Idolatry is taking anything and putting it in place of God. And human autonomy is the idea that we are autonomous, that we work independently of any authority, and we put ourselves and our decision-making in God's place. That we don't need God, I'm in charge of my own life. And boy, that sounds an awful lot like what Satan promised Eve, that you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, once that big lie creeps in and we start to think in this way, it creates desires in us that are evil. We see Eve starts having these evil desires in verse 6. It says this, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. It gives three desires there in that verse. The first two are about how nice the tree is. It is good for food. It is pleasant to the sight, a delight to the eyes. And that's not surprising. If you flip back, Genesis 2.9 says that when God planted the garden, every tree in the garden was good for food and pleasant to look at. And all Eve is seeing is, wow, so is that tree. That tree over there that we're not supposed to eat of, that one also it looks good for food and it's pretty to look at. It's so similar to all the other trees. Why is it so special? Why can't we have that tree? It's not that different, is it? Maybe God was wrong. Why would it be so bad to eat of a tree that is so similar to the other ones? Her desires creep in and she starts desiring that which is sinful. Those were the first two desires. The third desire is that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Eve saw not only that it was tasty and that it was pretty, but it was useful. 
The tree was desired to gain knowledge and wisdom that she was lacking something and this would give her something that she needed. It was useful. She started thinking, hey, good things could come from disobeying God. Really good, useful things. Do you hear Eve rationalizing her sinful choices? Once the lies from the devil create doubt in her mind, she starts to desire sin. Doubt leads to desire, and desire leads to disobedience. See, she starts rationalizing those desires. She's arguing with herself that sin is not that bad of a choice. In fact, it may be a good choice. Have we ever had that kind of internal monologue with ourselves? Have we ever thought to ourselves, man, this sin's not so bad? And then looked back and realized, oh man, was I dumb. We use rationalizations like this. Well, this isn't going to hurt anybody. God wouldn't be mad at me for this thing. Other people do this all the time. Just this once wouldn't hurt. You know, it's not as bad as what she's doing over here. You know, I don't think God had in mind my situation when he gave this law. You know, this is an old law. This is the modern age. Or think of all the good and happiness I would get if I broke this law. All of those things are justifications. There's ways of rationalizing our sinful desires. They are lies we believe that lead us down that sinful path. It's how sin happens. And boy, does it happen quickly. Sin happens fast. Satan didn't have to say much. Eve didn't take too long to think about it. It is like a fast-acting poison. The lies replace the truth in an instant. And before we know it, we find ourselves having sinned even if we didn't really want to. And that's what Paul is speaking of in Romans 7. That he knows what is right. He wants to do what is right. And oh, I did what is wrong again. How does this keep happening? Sin is deceptive like that. Sin works fast like that. He's horrified at how strong his sinful desires remain, even when he's following Jesus Christ. He knows better, and yet he's still justifying what is wrong. But as Adam and Eve learned, sin is really hard to justify after the fact. Before sin, it's really easy to justify sin. After sin, it is really hard to justify it. Sin never delivers on its promise. Think of how hopeful Eve was when she ate of the fruit of that tree. She thought, I'm going to be like God. I'm going to know good and evil. And I suppose she did kind of, in a sense. But there was regret. There was shame. There was fear and brokenness. Sin left her, instead of feeling fulfilled, it left her feeling empty. And for us... Sin is the same. It may gratify our desires for a short time, but it never offers lasting fulfillment. Like an addiction, it promises something it will never deliver. Sin deteriorates. It destroys. It corrupts. 
It ruins. It takes good things and makes them bad. That's the nakedness here of Adam and Eve. Before their sin, the nakedness was a good sign. Not that we should all be nudists, but it was a good sign of openness and trust. There was nothing to hide. It was an open relationship between Adam and Eve. They trusted one another, and immediately after sinning, they feel the need to hide, to cover, a sign of shame. They are fearful that they will be found out. They don't want anyone to see the real them. They feel exposed, unworthy, open to criticism. They fear one another and they fear God. Sin did work on Adam and Eve, and it does hard work on us too. It puts us in this position where we don't want to be around others, where we don't want others to see what's really inside of us. We don't want to share what's going on. We don't even want to share it with God. We're ashamed, afraid, and feeling unworthy. And that is certainly how Adam and Eve felt. Prior to their sin, we see their relationship with God was great. They were in the garden. It was perfect. There was harmony. He would walk in the garden and it would be wonderful. And afterwards, they're cowering in fear in little fig leaf loincloths, hating one another and worried about God. God calls to them in the garden, where are you? And Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid Because I was naked and I hid myself. The great God who created them, who gave them life, who put them on earth, who gave them one another, they're afraid of him now because of sin. They're afraid of him. The consequences of sin came true. And it leads to them wanting to cover their shame and shift the blame. Feeling exposed, they make these coverings for them. They're trying to self-atone for their sins. They want to do something to make it right. They want to click the undo button on the computer and say, no, not that. Let's go back. Not that one. Can we undo what we just did? And even though they know they've done something wrong, they want to shift the focus elsewhere. They don't want to take that focus. Both Adam and Eve try to shift the blame. Adam, in all of his brilliance, says, the woman whom you, God, gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit, (laughs) and I ate. He, he, He puts that part at the end. He first emphasizes God giving him this horrible woman, and the woman for deceiving him, and oh yeah, I might have taken a bite there at the end. Eve follows suit. The serpent deceived me, and and I ate. They are afraid of God's judgment, and so they put someone else first. You go first. You get judged first, and then maybe I can sneak away while he's punishing you. They try to cover their sinful tracks. Unfortunately, the kind of fear that Adam and Eve had was the wrong kind of fear. Adam and Eve's fear was full of shame because of their sin. They were worried about God because they had sinned. It was a fear of brokenness. But God intended another kind of fear for Adam and Eve, a reverential fear of his respect. This is what Proverbs talks about. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom. That kind of fear is a respectful fear. God wants his people to respect his authority, to trust his character and obey his word. 
That's what a good fear of the Lord looks like. Fear of the Lord is not worried about being hit with the divine magnifying glass like we're an ant. Fear of the Lord is a right respect that God is God and we are not. It's what God's command was meant to teach. God told Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because if they did, they would die. But God never gave a reason. God told them the consequences, you will die. But he didn't say, don't eat of the tree because it's bad for you. Because it's poisonous. Because it really does a number on your digestive tract. He didn't say any of that. He just said, don't eat of it or you will die. And so Adam and Eve had to obey, not because they thought it was the right thing based on their own reasoning. They had to obey simply because God told them to obey. They had to trust his judgment. They had to trust his authority, his character. Would they trust that he was a good God even if he told them not to do this one thing and never told them why? See, if we think about it, though, if, if they disobeyed and they did eat of the tree, they would learn about good and evil firsthand. They knew what good was like and they knew what evil was like. But if they had obeyed God, they also would have learned of good and evil. They would have known it was good to obey God and it was evil not to obey God. God would have told them what good and evil was. The tree was a way to teach good and evil either in a great way or in a sinful way. Either way, they would get a knowledge of good and evil through obedience or disobedience, through a godly fear of respect or through a sinful fear of shame, one way or another, they were going to know good and evil. But they had to think, was God for them? And that's the big question for us. Do you believe God is for you? Do you trust his authority and respect his commands? Or do you want to be like God? Do you like to be in charge of your life? Do you like to decide right and wrong? Do you doubt that God has your best interests in mind? Now, before you answer that question, I'm sorry, it's already been answered for you. Adam and Eve answered that question. Adam and Eve have set humanity on a sinful course. In Sunday school this morning, we talked about original sin, that through their sin, all of humanity has been corrupted by sin. And so from birth, our default setting out of the womb is sin. It is trusting the lies of the devil and not God's word. And so we all have that shame from sin, that fear of God's judgment, that fear that God's going to find out, that others are going to find out that we are sinners. And so it seems like we're out of luck, that they decided everything for us, but there is hope. There is hope in Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was human like us. He was tempted like us. And yet he never sinned. He perfectly obeyed his father, respecting his authority, even though he was like God. He did it right. And his perfect obedience is given to us as a covering for our sinful nakedness. You see, in so many ways, we try to cover our shame through our good deeds. I'm a nice person. Through our good intentions. Well, I mean well. I mean, I'm not trying to do mean things. But when we try to cover ourselves, really all it is is flimsy, leafy coverings that blow away at the first breeze. That's all it is. 
they are no real covering at all. But in Jesus Christ, we are covered in his perfect righteousness like a beautiful garment. And so when he sees us, he sees us as if we were as perfect as Jesus Christ. And so we can be saved from our sin. And so the question we have today is not the same question as Adam and Eve. It's a different question. It's do you feel the shame of your sin? Are you ashamed of your past thoughts, attitudes, and actions? Are you worried about being found out? Are you hiding from God and hiding from others? Are you doing everything in your power to try and cover yourself so no one can see your sin? And do you see that every attempt to cover yourself falls short? Do you fear that there is a judgment from God? That there are consequences for sin? And if so, do you trust that Christ has suffered those consequences for your disobedience? Do you trust that he offers righteousness, his own righteousness, freely as a gift to be received Do you trust that he alone can cover us in the way we need to be covered for our sin and shame? If you trust that, we're still going to struggle like Paul does. We're still going to struggle with that nature, the sinful nature and the new nature inside of us. But as we struggle, we seek Jesus in prayer, knowing he is the one who resisted every temptation his whole life. That he was out somewhere, just as Adam was, pretty much alone. And he was tempted by the devil. And the devil got three shots at it. And he came up short. For Jesus did what was right. He faced every temptation and came up righteous. And so we ask him for help. We ask the Spirit to help us trust in God's word rather than lies. To give us eyes to see, oh, that one's a lie. I can't believe in that. And we remember always. In every circumstance, no matter what happens, that God is for us. He is not against us. And the greatest example we have of that is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If while we were his enemies, he would die for us and love us, how much more, now that we trust in him, will he be for us, regardless of what happens, regardless of what we do, regardless of anything that comes our way? Our God is for us. May we trust in him and his son, Jesus Christ. It is our only hope in our sin. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your son, Jesus. We give thanks that the truth, the very living word of God in the flesh came because we needed him. He is the embodiment of the word of God. He lives the word of God. And though we so often fall away from the word, we know that he does it right. And in him we have hope that the punishment we deserve for our disobedience, he has taken upon himself. And his righteousness, the gift for his obedience, the reward is given to us freely, though we do not deserve it. Help us to trust in him. And Lord, we pray that you would give us all shields of faith to battle against the flaming darts, the bullets of the evil one and his lies. Expose those lies. Shine your light into the darkness, Lord. May we see the light and see it as good, knowing you are good and you are for us in all things, our loving Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.